This is the Foot in the Box podcast for the week of Monday, May 30th. And now, please rise for the singing of our Hello and welcome to episode 52 of the Put in the Box podcast. My name is Peter Elliott. And I'm Paul Elliott. Coming to you from Champaign, Illinois. This is a weekly baseball podcast. Uh, Paul, how's it going? Uh, I've had better weeks. Yeah, your White Sox had a rough uh, weekend. Yes, they have. Uh, I actually have not watched either game, um, but it's almost worse to like go back and watch or read um Read the recounts of them, um, but yeah, they blew a four-run lead. They were up five to one on Friday against the Royals and lost that. And then they blew a six-run lead with uh, two outs left in the ninth inning yesterday. So about as bad of a weekend as so you they can sp- have. No, they weren't up seven-one with two outs. Sorry, two outs remaining. Oh yeah, with one out in the ninth. One out, up six. They're closer on the mound. Yeah, it was. And that it hasn't just been recently. I think they're uh, like four and thirteen in their last seventeen games, mm-hmm. and um, below five hundred um, against teams other than the Twins. So, um, wow. yeah, we let ourselves get excited for a little bit as Sox fans, but it looks like regression is happening right now. Mm-hmm. Forgot uh, Nelly. Thanks to him for our intro song. Our f- uh, Nelly fun fact this week is his net worth is what Paul. Hmm. Nelly's net worth is fifteen million. Sixty million. Sixty. Mm-hmm. Wow. It's according to a 2014 uh, estimate, so it could be different now. Um, yeah. So first on my uh, baseball banter segment, Paul, I wanted to uh, ask you about your doubleheader thoughts. Uh, you did not interview any fans of the game. You let us down. I did not. You're right. But. Uh, you wrote a blog post about why you liked doubleheader so much. So I assume that you had a good time last Monday. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Um, like I wrote in my my column this week, I just think as a fan, it's an awesome experience. I think the main reason is like you don't feel this tension between really like focusing on the game and keeping the scorecard and just walking around the stadium. Mm-hmm. You know, like you, it's not like this dichotomy of you focus on the game or you just enjoy the experience. You can kind of do both, and you can still go to like concession stand and you have time to like go look at merchandise so i just think it's a great experience for fans especially being two hours away i'm much more inclined to go if that had been only one game on monday i probably wouldn't have gone mm-hmm. but I, we've talked about it before on the podcast you're you're also a fan right yeah yeah definitely uh that's where the losing happened right they haven't won since monday yeah you're right five, they lost five in a row mm-hmm. yeah yeah, uh, the we, two pitchers we saw for the White Sox, we missed both Sale and Quintana. We saw Matt Latos and uh, Eric Johnson, so the White Sox, two worst pitchers. Well, I'm going to the Cubs game on Memorial Day, Monday. and So it, Alex Wood and um, Hamill, Hamill, Jason Hamill. So, but, so the Dodgers and Cubs play at Wrigley. Kershaw is pitching tonight, uh, or Sunday Night Baseball, and then Arietta goes on Tuesday. Wow. So we missed uh, missed those guys by uh, a couple of days as well. Hamill's still he's like a what top ten, top fifteen mm-hmm. pitcher in baseball still. Yeah. 
Uh, Matt well, Bush update. Before we get to that, I feel like I have to ask you, since you're going to a Cubs game, are you going to interview fans? Uh, I was hoping you wouldn't ask me that. Um, <laughs> I'll think about it. It's much more awkward. Well, so, so my contribution to the podcast is uh, I, I you know, kind of host it. Oh, I edit the podcast. I do a lot of the – I edit all your columns. Um, you know, I kind of am the uh, – Content director, bunch of garbage. Where you, you know, just do what I kind of say. So I thought you kind of, you didn't follow my authority. No comment. No comment. Uh, Matt Bush update: four more scoreless appearances this past week. Uh, he is getting hit a bit harder. Uh, in four innings this past week, he gave up seven hits and just had three strikeouts. Um, but Saturday night, uh, he was used in the eighth inning of a three-run game. So it seems like they're. Uh, you know, if he keeps on not giving up runs, they're going to keep using him in high leverage situations. Shockingly, I haven't seen any traction for your your push to get him banned from baseball. Sometimes the right opinion isn't the most popular one. Uh, I actually read a, a Fangraphs article, retweeted it from a foot in the box. Uh, Bush's fastball ranks eighth in velocity uh, so far this year. Uh, average velocity of 97.2 miles per hour. Paul, do you know who's leading baseball? Uh, Rolos Chapman. He's averaging over 100 miles per hour on wow. his fastball. Um, another update, the Indians. Last week I shared that they were only drawing, I believe, like 14,600 fans per game. Props to the Cleveland faithful. They listen to our podcast. That number is up to 15,150 as of Sunday morning. Uh, that's up from up over uh, 500 fans per game from last Sunday. And I believe I know the, the reason why. I found a, a local Cleveland news story uh, from ABC5 in Cleveland, so we're going to play that uh, news story now. Summer weather is here just in time for the Indians to come home for a 10-game stretch. They may be winning games this year, but they are dead last in another ranking. Derek Waller is live at Progressive Field. Derek, we're talking about attendance, which is not so great. Yeah, not so great. They're actually last place when it comes to attendance, but they are trying hard to turn that around, put some butts in these seats starting this weekend. To stay away from the big ones. That's the home team continues to hit them out of the park. It's a winning season for the Indians. Still, fans are not flocking to Progressive Field. Does that surprise you? Um, not that much. Cleveland's not a big baseball town anymore. So. Steve Greenwood went a couple weeks ago. He plans to go back, but says the Cavs are soaking up all the attention. You know, maybe after the Cavs, you know, in their runs, more people may go. According to ESPN, the Indians are averaging about 14,500 fans per home game this season. That's behind Tampa Bay and Oakland, and far from the more than 40,000 per game L.A., St. Louis, and San Francisco squeezed into their seats. It's not easy to certainly uh, sell 81 home games. Team spokesman Curtis Danbury puts some of the blame on our cold spring, but with heat here to stay, and renovations like the massive new scoreboard now complete, he's hoping fans come back downtown. What we've done over the past two years is completely renovate and enhance the experience for our fans to want to come here more than one time a year and be a part of the experience. And with the team we have, now's the time for fans to get behind this team and, and really provide that home field advantage to, to propel us into a postseason berth. And back here live at Progressive Field, Danberg says that things could be looking up this weekend because attendance looks to be above 20,000 for this weekend's games. Of course, tomorrow night at 7:10 they take on the Orioles for Dollar Dog Night. 
and I just learned that it's also going to be the first fireworks of the season. So the Dollar Dogs did it, huh? Uh, apparently, yeah. So uh, uh, good job by the Cleveland uh, ticket sales team. Um, what's funny about the Indians is that uh, they actually helped drive the Browns out of Cleveland the first time when they moved to uh, Baltimore. Right? Hmm. Um, that 30 for 30 I mentioned last week, uh, they were talking about how nice the, the new Indian stadium was, and therefore no, no one wanted to go to the Browns uh, stadium. But now it seems like the Cavs are the hot thing, and the uh, no, no one wants to go to Indians games. Um, and I think that, didn't they have a huge like sellout streak in the 90s? Yeah, back when they had like, you know, Manny and Jim Tomey and it was, uh, Bartolo. Jacob, Jacob's field. Yeah, Kenny Lofton. Uh, so we'll keep tracking attendance and uh, keep my eye out for attendance stories on the local news. Uh, one last thing I wanted to talk about before we get to our segments, uh, the Mets and Dodgers uh, Crazy. fiasco. Not really much context is needed here. I mean, uh, everyone knows about the Utley slide last postseason against the Mets. Broke Ruben Tejada's leg. Uh, you know, horribly late slide, changed a lot of the rules uh, about double play slides at second um, this offseason. Uh, Chase Utley still plays for the Dodgers. And uh, first time facing the Mets this year, uh, Noah Syndergaard threw behind him, gets ejected. Seemed like a pretty big overreaction from the umpire because there was no warnings before that. That was verified? I believe so. So, I, I, yeah, what did you make of the whole thing, Paul? Yeah, because that would have been the only rationale, right? If, like, before the game, if the umps, as they're meeting to exchange lineup cards, if they had said there's a warning. But I, I don't, yeah, I don't think there was one. I think the ump just said you threw at, like, it was so clear that you threw at him. Yeah. And I, I kind of get that. I kind of get, um, I mean, throwing a ball at somebody is just ridiculous and shouldn't happen in baseball. Uh, but the umps need to be more consistent. There's certain times where they, it seems like they let that stuff happen. Like with Bush, uh, did he get ejected when he hit Batista? Or, uh, yes. Yeah. Um, ejected, but not suspended. Okay. Uh, so yeah, I think more consistency is something that people, uh, were asking for. And I would agree. I feel like Utley has this weird, uh, like support from kind of like, uh, Older players and umpires. I feel like he's got this. Hmm. Back when that slide happened, there were several people uh, that defended him. Defended him and probably a good teammate. I don't know if uh, you know if a younger guy is at bat there without a reputation if he gets tossed right away. Hmm. I don't know. I just think That's that plays question. into it a bit. Uh, Chase Elliott's having a great season. Yeah, he's been very good. Two ninety six average, three eighty six on base, four fifty three slugging. He's already at one point seven WAR uh, at thirty seven years old. Uh, bargain deal for the the Dodgers. They got him at one year and seven million dollars for 2016. Um, I was even thinking like the White Sox, if they would have signed him instead of like Rollins or yeah. Lori, uh, could have been a, a good deal. Yeah, that's kind of the season they're hoping to get out of Rollins, but that has not happened yet. Mm-hmm. Looking back at the 2015 division series, uh, it's crazy how those kind of instantly became rivalries for 2016. So you've got the Rangers and Blue Jays, mm-hmm. that big fiasco. Uh, Mets and Dodgers seems to be a, a thing, and the the Cubs and the Cardinals, of course, have always been a rivalry. But I feel like last year that yeah. series fueled kind of the Madden versus Matheny uh, thing, which this past week kind of uh, dusted up because uh, Madden challenged a 
play that it was like nine to one in the ninth and then he challenged a call at first and then Matheny got upset and brought the infield in. Um, Who was the other division series? Oh, uh, Astros Royals. Yeah. Yeah. Good series, but yeah, I don't, I haven't heard of any ill will. Mostly because the Astros are terrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got anything else? Uh, I was just going to say, it, it, I, at least from my perspective, it's becoming more and more apparent that the uh, the Giants, I think, are emerging as kind of the Cubs as the uh, second team in the National League to challenge the Cubs. Really? Pirates are playing well. Yeah, I just think the if I were a Cubs fan, the um, the trio of starters that the Giants have, hmm. Baumgartner, Cueto, and Samarja, they all have FIPS under three, and uh, they just seem... The Giants, especially, seem to be uh, a really good postseason team. So mm-hmm. I would be, I wouldn't say worried, but that they would be a team that I would be keeping an eye on as a Cubs mm-hmm. fan. The thing about their regular season record is that the other two spots in the rotation have just been awful. Pretty terrible, yeah. PV and Kane just got hurt. He wasn't pitching that well. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, this week's podcast, have out of the box, uh, Paul and I have a couple baseball articles to talk about. Then TWTW, what are we looking at this week, Paul? Uh, the luckiest players so far this year. Okay. Uh, then we have Sounds of the Game, looking at the Mexican sensation, Fernando Valenzuela. Uh, very topical this week with Julio Urias, his debut. Hopefully I'm pronouncing how, that yeah, correctly. How confident are you that you're pronouncing that? Uh, right? I'd say 45. Then after Sounds of the Game, uh, no interview this week, no baseball profile. We have our annual Memorial Day trade deadline game. First annual. First annual. Uh, so Paul and I will explain it there, but essentially we're just drafting players we think will get traded. And then we'll head to the bottom of the ninth with Say My Name, my Yahoo Answer of the Week, which I'll hype now. This question will blow your mind, Paul. Hmm. Uh, this question, I will tweet it out this week uh, and, and give the the credit where it's due, but it will uh, it will elicit some feedback. Uh, I guarantee it. Uh, and then close it out with pick your team. But first, we have out of the box. All right, the article that I read this week was uh, from Fangraphs. Craig Edwards wrote it. Uh, the title is Braves Rangers Indicate No End to Publicly Funded Stadiums. Mm. Um, as I've stated a few times on the podcast um, over our 52 episodes, um, and then also, Peter, you know, just in conversation, I am uh, a big uh, anti-publicly funded stadium guy. I think it's ridiculous when owners uh, threaten to, to leave a city just in order to get um, taxpayers in that city to pay for a new stadium. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess this article is just kind of fodder for me to uh, to rant about it on our podcast. But uh, Edwards looks into kind of the history of publicly funded stadiums over the last 20 or 30 years. Um, so in, since Camden Yards was built in the early 90s, uh, there have been 21 new stadiums built. Out of those 21 stadiums, guess how many were uh, privately funded? So not paid for by tax money? Correct. Uh, like at all? Correct. Uh, I'll guess uh, three. Uh, one. Okay. Yeah, the Giants um, built a stadium uh, using private funds in the early 90s, um, right around the time Barry Bonds got there. Um, but that was it. The, the Cardinals uh, kind of 
did more like a split, you know, half hmm. half private, half public. And then two, two of those parks that were built since Camden are getting new parks again, right? Correct. The, the Rangers and the... Yeah, Rangers and the Braves, which is why this article was written. Um, so 21 out of 30 franchises have had new stadiums built, and eight others have undergone uh, major renovations. So that leaves Tampa Bay as the only uh, franchise not to do anything uh, since then. So I thought that was really interesting that only one out of 21 uh, stadiums has been privately funded. Um, And then when you dig into some of the details about the Braves and the Rangers, uh, it's pretty maddening. Um, If I were a resident of the Atlanta area or of Arlington, I'd be pretty frustrated. In the case of the Rangers, um, they didn't even, their stadium is fine. They're, They're not getting a ton of complaints. Their attendance is above average, but they just felt like, the city felt like the Rangers kind of deserved a new stadium. Um, for it's too hot, right? Too hot, yeah. Um, for for being in Arlington, felt like uh, it was time that they got a new stadium, and so they're building a brand new air condition well, with stadium the, in Arlington. They're not even moving to a new area. Well, with the Rangers, uh, it's like they're not imposing a new tax; they're just extending the tax that was levied to build the Cowboys' right, new yeah. stadium. So they they're playing it off like it's not a, a classic. Mm-hmm. We're taxing everyone. It's just oh, we're extending the tax that was already in place, and their lease isn't even up on their. The Braves' lease had run up after twenty years, okay. and so that gave them the opportunity to move on. But the um, the Rangers' lease at the, the ballpark in Arlington wasn't even up. And are they are they tearing down Turner Field and? That's a great question. The Rangers Park. I don't know. It's a really good question. Um, but yeah, then the Braves. You know, if I lived in um, lived in the city and they were moving to Cobb County, I would be. It'd be pretty livid as well. Um, yeah, I just think that you know millionaire billionaire owners don't deserve that, and I think there is a sense in which a baseball team isn't like every other business. Like you can't just um, uproot. Like you have a fan base and you have loyalty, and it's just such a part of people's lives that to threaten to move elsewhere just so you can get a uh, a publicly funded stadium, I think, is a pretty pretty crappy move. Mm-hmm. Did you read the article I sent you? Uh, I, yeah, I read part of it. Okay. Yeah. So there's an article on baseball prospectus, um, by Meg Rowley, Mm -hmm. something like that. And she talked about how, you know, of course everyone gets upset over the tax issue. There's so many other things that tax money should be going towards, or just, we shouldn't be taxing people. (laughs) It's going to pay for things like this. Uh, but there's also the element that teams keep building new parks. There's not, um, or I guess you lose something when you build a new park like as a fan going to Wrigley there's like certain elements uh about the park I remember like oh this is my vantage point for this play or oh this is where I always go to get a hot mm-hmm. dog or this is where I walked up with my nephew for the first time like with mm-hmm. Grady um there's like special moments in the park that become very nostalgic and special and yeah, like like a home very right. much like a home and if you keep building new homes when you don't need to, uh, you just lose something. Like it, this home becomes less special uh, to you. And so I thought that was a really good point. Um, yeah, totally. And even in, like most owners are baseball fans. That's kind of why they get into it. I feel like mm-hmm. at least you know Jerry Reinsdorf, Tom Ricketts, both um, both fans of baseball. And so I just feel like they should have an understanding more than anyone that 
uh, baseball is not like a normal business and there's loyalty. And like you're saying, it's kind of a sacred thing to just uproot a stadium. Yep. And it, what's kind of nuts is for all the threatening about moving, only one team has actually moved in the last, only one franchise has, has moved cities in the last 40 years. That being uh, the Expos going to hmm. um, Washington. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, even though there's new stadiums being built, there's not a whole lot of actual, like, movement, even though there's been, like, you know, double-digit moves in NFL and NBA. Mm-hmm. So. It's good stuff. My article this week uh, comes from Baseball Prospectus, Patrick Dubuque, and uh, the title of the article is Make OBP Honest. So, Paul, I have a question for you, question for the listeners as well. Uh, how do you uh, figure out on base percentage? What's the math formula? Put uh, you on the spot here. On base percentage is uh, the amount, amount of times you get on base, so hits plus... Uh, walks plus hit by pitches plus errors. Yeah, I think plus getting on by an error divided by the number of plate appearances you have. Yeah. So, uh, I thought it was simply the amount of times you got on base divided by plate appearances, but it's hits plus walks plus hit by pitches divided by at bats plus walks plus hit by pitches plus sacrifice flies. So it's not quite all your plate appearances. Hmm. Kind of confusing. Because uh, a sacrifice fly isn't a plate appearance? Uh, like a, a sacrifice fly uh, is counted in on base percentage, but like a sacrifice bunt isn't. Huh. Anyway, so the article gets into uh, why this formula, which was kind of, you know developed a long time ago, Henry Chadwick invented the box score, and Chadwick was really looking... Uh, the I guess the box score isn't devoid of uh, subjectivity. You know, we think of it as a completely objective thing, but with errors and uh, with these stats that people invented a long time ago, it's very subjective. Like, these are the things that we value players on, but who's to say that they're the best things to value players on? Right. It's kind of the money ball way of thinking. And uh, Dubuque, his, his uh, suggestion is that we make on base percentage, completely honest, that we uh, factor it as every time you get on base divided by every time you come up to bat. And so that would include things like uh, reaching on air, Mm -hmm. uh, catcher's interference, fielder's interference, all those sorts of things, because it's been shown that certain players are better at those than others. There's like a player that has like nine catcher's interferences in his career. Um, And so it's a weird skill, but that is a skill. And he gets on base because of it. Do you know why that it wasn't just that simple? Uh, yeah, just when it was invented, just hmm. that was someone's rationale for on base percentage. Um, so I thought that was a good idea. It probably won't change. Um, but yeah, if you're wondering, on base percentage is hits plus walks plus hit by pitches divided by at bats plus walks plus hit by pitches plus sacrifice flies. Um, and you can read the rest of the article along with Paul's article on the podcast episode page at afootinthebox.com. Next up, we have TWTW. When you can put some of those categories, you know, you got your OBPS and all that and the VORPs. When they put in TWTW and then interface those numbers with TWTW under that category, then you might have something cooking. What, what, what TW is. Yeah, what is that? That's the will to win. 
All right. Thanks as always to Hawk for the intro. Um, for Which t- Hawk, I didn't mention earlier during the um, meltdown on Saturday. I went back and rewatched it. He was suggesting uh, pretty emphatically. He's very angry that the White Sox weren't putting the defender behind the catcher uh, on uh, who was the bad pitcher that came in. Uh, Tommy Canley. Tommy Canley, which was also a terrible move by Ventura to bring him in. Uh, why they weren't bringing the fielder behind the catcher because Kaylee couldn't throw. Which um, uh, is illegal, right? Yeah, very illegal. And the second time he mentioned it, uh, Steve Stone, his partner, said, uh, not sure if the rule book's changed, but uh, it's been illegal for a while. <laughs> Hawk maintained that he had seen it before. Probably when Yaz was up. Yeah, or Yaz. Uh, probably Yaz from his position in the outfield could run behind him. <laughs> um, yeah, it seems like there's been a weekly Hawk thing this year, even though he's doing half as many games. but. Mm-hmm. Um, so for TWTW this week, I'm actually using an article that was written by Rob Arthur of 538, very talented baseball statistical writer that I enjoy. He wrote an article entitled, Who's Hitting the Ball Harder This Year and Who's Just Getting Lucky? And um, the article looks at players that so far this year are getting like uh, lucky in a good way or unlucky in a bad way. And the way that they measure this is by looking at shifts in uh, OPS, on-base plus slugging. Uh, so he looks at all like the biggest margins of uh, change in OPS, and he uh, subtracts that against predicted changes in OPS based on StatCast data. So Arthur in 538 developed a formula by which you can look at uh, velocity, speed off the bat, and launch angle, and you can predict the change in um, OPS this year. So I, I don't know all that goes into that, but essentially you're just taking sort of the subjective out of it and you're saying, based on how hard a batter's hit the ball and the way he's hit the ball this year, what should his OPS be and what is his actual OPS, um, uh, thereby being able to determine if the player's been lucky so far this year or, you know, meeting about what he should. Um, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So um, on the unlucky side of things, the the most uh, or the least lucky player so far this year is Kendrys Morales, DH for the Royals. Uh, he has had an actual OPS decline of 287 points uh, when the um, using their algorithm, he should uh, be up um, 88 points so far this year. So that's a difference of 375 points. Um, also in that range is Prince Fielder. Uh, DH for the Rangers. It's been awful. Yeah, he's, he's had a dip of 287 points in his OPS actual when the predicted amount um, is just down 35 points. Um, other guys, Joey Votto, Mark Teixeira, Russell Martin, um, they are all in this camp as well. Also, uh, Domingo Santana, right fielder for the Brewers, are all um, have all been um, really unlucky so far this year. Uh, conversely, looking at the players who have... Uh, Please got, tell me Diaz for the Cardinals is on there. Uh, no, he's not Dang. on here. Um, two guys in particular have been really lucky, according to this Hazel Baker. formula. Nope. Uh, John Jaso. Carpenter. Holiday. Or is it John? It's John Jaso. Is that how you pronounce it? Oh, with the Pirates. First baseman for the Pirates. He has had an actual decrease of negative seven points in his OPS, when really it should have been a dip of almost negative 200 points. Have you seen what he looks like? Yeah, real long hair. Hippie. And then Michael uh, Sanders, Michael Saunders, uh, outfielder for the Blue Jays, has also been 
very lucky so far this year. So I I enjoy this. Um, if you're a fantasy player, this would be really helpful. It, it takes some of the subjectivity out of it. We're only two months in, and it's such a small sample size that you can tend to to overreact. So I would look for guys like I mentioned, Prince Fielder, and Kendris Morales, Joey Votto to uh, to pick it up. Uh, I've been trying to offer Jason to everyone in my fantasy league, but no one's taken him. You drafted him or picked of him up? Of course not. No. no one has him. All right, that's good stuff, and we'll link to it in the podcast episode page. Next up, we have Sons of the Game. All right, for Sounds of the Game this week, uh, we are going to look at, like I mentioned earlier, Fernando Valenzuela. Uh, so Fernando made his debut in 1980 at the age of 19. Uh, Valenzuela is from uh, the country of Mexico, uh, and he's also only 5'11", a very unique uh, player in baseball history. Uh, and I thought of Fernando because this week another Mexican ball player, uh, Julio Urias, I uh, apologize if I'm still mispronouncing that. Uh, he made his debut with also the Dodgers this past Friday. He's also 19 years old, um, also short, only six foot. Um, so a lot of similarities there between the two. Neither one of them threw uh, all that hard. Um, Fernando actually had a screwball. It's kind of like his best pitch or what he's famous for. So I thought it would be cool to, to look at Valenzuela's best uh, performances. Uh, Fernando, uh, like I said, made his major league debut in 1980. 1981 is the season where he really took off, though. He won the Cy Young and Rookie of the Year award that year. He is the only pitcher ever to do that. Uh, despite these records, he was snubbed <laughs> in Paul's uh, MVP or best best, best rookies, rookies of all time. Yeah, which I think you d- um, didn't account for the fact that it was a strike shortened year, so his numbers aren't all that impressive. Yeah, his war wouldn't be that great. Uh, but the season was shortened by quite a bit. Like mm-hmm. his stats were the best. He should have won Cy Young, which is rare that a guy that won Cy Young back then actually should have. But he did have pretty great numbers. There's a strike in Indy one. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Yep. Uh, it was like midseason. So Valenzuela started the year 8-0 with five shutouts and uh, really took the baseball world by storm. Uh, he became really popular with Dodgers fans, many of whom were Latino. Because Los Angeles was, uh, um, you know, it's close to Mexico, and uh, there's lots of um, people with um, Mexican descent um, from all my studies on Latin American things. Uh, all right, so there was no great uh, audio or video from 1981, so I picked another popular Valenzuela moment. He threw a no hitter the only no-hitter of his career against the St. Louis Cardinals on June 29th, 1990. And Vince Scully is on the call of course, uh, for that game, yes. What would a Foot in the Box uh, podcast be without a Vince Scully reference? Yes. Uh, so listen to this call. Also, while you listen to it, think of uh, other players you know from Mexico. There are quite a few current players that are pretty uh, well-known, so uh, think of that. And then after the... Uh, Vince Scully, call of the no-hitter, I will list those. So here is Vince Scully calling Fernando Valenzuela's no-hitter. And so it has come to this. We go to the ninth inning here at Dodger Stadium. 
The Dodgers six runs, 12 hits, one error. The Cardinals no runs, no hits, and three errors. It is the 29th of June. In case someday, long from now, Fernando is playing this back to his grandchildren. And Vince Coleman will start it off. Coleman is grounded ashore and struck out twice. Pass ball away, ball one. For Fernando, it began with the Dodgers in 1980. This is game number 314 for him in his career. And he's had some glorious moments, but none brighter than right now. And a screwball high, ball two. He has a paid crowd of 38,583, over 39,000 in the house, and they are here. They are riveted in their seats. Fernando into his windup, and the 2-0 pitch is in there for a strike. Anytime a pitch is taken at the plate, you could almost neglect to call ball or strike because this crowd would let you know. In eight innings, Fernando made 107 pitches, so he should have quite a bit of ammunition left. The 2-1 pitch to Coleman, line foul, outside a third and down the line. And the crowd oohs and ahs the severity of the blow and also thinking about how close it might have been to breaking the spell. Coleman, talking about a spell being broken, is hitting 300. He has a 10-game hitting streak of his own on the line. The crowd trying to will Fernando to get an out, and the 2-2 pitch is strike three called. Outside corner as Coleman ran up as if to bunt. And he and Jerry Lane, the plate umpire, are nose-to-nose. But Coleman has struck out three times. And more importantly, Fernando has only two outs to go. It is almost incidental to report that that is the seventh strikeout of the night for Fernando Valenzuela. And now, Willie McGee, who has hit Fernando hard in the past, tonight, struck out, lined out, and grounded out. Takes a look at a pitch low, ball one. A lot of pressure on a lot of people, including Mike Sharperson, who just came into the game, remember, as a pinch hitter in the bottom of the eighth, and cold, if you could be cold, on a night like tonight in Los Angeles. He is asked to play third base, 90 feet away from the hitters with a no-hitter in the balance. There is pressure in the press box. Joe Ferguson trying to deploy the Dodger defensive alignment to perfection. Fernando's 1-0 pitch to McGee outside. In looking at the Dodgers, Eddie Murray wide, but even with the bag at first. Sharperson close, and even with the bag at third. The outfield shaded to left. Javier slightly into left center. Brooks giving McGee most of right field. And Gonzalez straight away and left. Fernando reading his buddy signs, Mike Socia. And the 2-0 Scroogey is high. Ball three. For the record, the men behind him. Eddie Murray, Juan Samuel, Alfredo Griffin, and Mike Sharperson. Jose Gonzalez, Stan Javier, and Hubie Brooks. Fernando back 3-0, and he is inside, ball four. So now, when he needs everything he has, he will have to pitch out of a stretch with Guerrero and Zeal coming up. There's almost some poetry in the moment 
to realize the former Dodger, the good friend of Fernando as a teammate, and it is Pedro Guerrero hitting 294 with the opportunity now to break up the no-hitter. Guerrero hit a looping fly ball to shallow left, dropped by Gibson for an error, fly to center and walked after that. And there goes McGee, and the pitch is hit foul outside of third and down the line, 0-1. So McGee going on the pitch, Fernando intent on getting Guerrero because McGee, with all of his talent, can't steal a no-hitter from first base. McGee has stolen 21 out of 25 with the Cardinals down 6 to nothing. It's not that McGee wants to steal, but the Dodgers don't want to hold him on. Murray is well off the bag, and so McGee figures if you're going to give it to me, we'll get it and take it. The strike one pitch to Pedro Guerrero. Swung on and missed. And the crowd now with more emotion following every pitch. There was a short chant, Pedro, Pedro, as they did in Boston in the 86 World Series to try and taunt Strawberry. And now they're doing it to Guerrero, hoping to distract him, hoping to upset him, hoping perhaps to make him try too hard. Fernando ready in the strike two pitch is hit back to the box, dribbling to second. Samuel on the bag, close to first, double play. Fernando Valenzuela has pitched a no-hitter at 10-17 in the evening of June the 29th, 1990. If you have a sombrero, throw it to the sky. Oh man, Vince Coy's the best. Uh, calling him the screwball, the Scroogey. Mm-hmm. And then uh, that last line about He does get a little rancy by himself sometimes. Sure, but the sombrero line was great. Um, Paul, do you, do you have uh, any guesses for players from Mexico in today's game? Uh, is, uh, yes, Manny Grandal, the catcher for the Dodgers. Is he from Mexico? He was not listed. Uh, I'll look him up. What about Giovanni Soto? Also not listed on my... Uh, hmm. Any hints? Um, one, one, one guy plays on the Dodgers right now. One of their better position players. Grindel is actually from Cuba. One of their better position players. Adrian Gonzalez? Mm-hmm. Wow. I didn't know that. And Giovanni Soto's from Puerto Rico. Mm. Um, yes, so Adrian Gonzalez is the best. Uh, Jaime Garcia from the Cardinals. Uh, Soria, I can never pronounce his first name, relief pitcher. Um, Giovanni Gallardo. Mm. Who's he play for now? Rangers? No. Look that up. Uh, so, Valenzuela is definitely the best player from Mexico of all time. He's not in the Hall of Fame. Um, Vinny Castillo is also a well-known player from uh, Mexico. Orioles, I believe. Cape Coyote. Just, uh, just double-checking here. He's been hurt this year. Yes, plays for the Orioles. 
All right. Uh, there's if you're um, wanting to to get to know Fernando better, there is a great thirty for thirty about him. Fernando Nation. Uh, it's probably on Netflix. Um, so go check that out. Fernando Nation is the name of it. Um, all right, that was Sounds of the Game. Next up, our annual Memorial Day trading deadline game. Paul, it's time for the first annual Memorial Day trade deadline game. Who gets first pick? Well, we should explain the rules first. Uh, right. Back and forth, 10 rounds. So 10 players each for both of us. Uh, and it's just at-bats or plate appearances and innings pitched is what counts. And you only get the innings pitched or the plate appearance if the player is traded. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, if I take Brandon Phillips and he doesn't get traded, my score is zero. But if he gets traded, all of the plate appearances for his new team would count to mine. And we're just looking at a net score for both innings pitched and plate appearances. You know what? I'll give you first pick because you've had a rough uh, rough time of it with the White Sox. Appreciate that. Uh, with the first pick, I will take... Can you read it better? Uh, with the first overall pick. There you go. In the first annual Memorial Day trade deadline draft, Paul takes Rich Hill. Talking about yourself in the third person. With the second pick, I will take James Shields. Rich Hill is someone I really wanted. Uh, we should probably snake this, right? Sure. All right, with my second pick, I will take Ryan Braun. Outfielder, Milwaukee. Um, Two good picks. Uh, I will take Jay Bruce. Outfielder for the Reds. And snaking it, I will t- also take Jonathan Lucroy. Hmm. I will go take two more Brewers. I'll take Aaron Hill and Chris Carter. It's amazing how bad the... Last year you have like Price and Cespedes. And yeah, this is not a great market. This year it's like Chris Carter, Aaron Hill. My uh, teams might... Weed out, like if the Yankees are bad, opens up a lot more. Uh, Andrew Kashner, pitcher for the Padres, former Cub. And. You think the Cubs would trade Anthony Rizzo for Kashner? <laughs> no. That's, That's right up there with the Rizzo trade, is one of Theo's best. Um, I'm also going to take Nick Marcakis. Too much money. All right. Uh, I'm going to take two Braves, Jeff Francoeur and A.J. Pruszynski. Um, uh, Drew Pomerantz, pitcher for the Padres. And I will also take Coco Crisp, outfielder for the Athletics. Take two Reds, Brandon Phillips and Tony Singrani. I thought about Phillips... But doesn't he have like a weird... Yeah, he's... I don't know. He'll eventually realize he wants to play for someone better. How many players is that for me? Uh, eight. Okay. I'm going to take uh, Julio Turan And uh, this one's a little uh, little out there. Jorge Soler. Hmm. I like it. That's great. 
So I've just got these are my last two. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, I will go Chris Davis. Chris with a K. Mm-hmm. With the uh, athletics, and then another athletic, Sunny Gray. All right, my last pick. I will go with uh, Eric Johnson, pitcher for the White Sox, who is reported to be on hmm. the block. Also very good. Uh, so, read off the teams. Yes, Pete has James Shields, Ryan Braun, Aaron Hill, Chris Carter, Jeff Francoeur, AJ Pierzynski, Brandon Phillips, Tony Singrani, Chris Davis, and Sonny Gray. It's a winning lineup right there. I have Rich Hill, Jay Bruce, Jonathan Lucroy, Andrew Kashner, Nick Markakis, Drew, Prom- Drew Pomerantz, Coco Crisp, Julio Turan, Jorge Soler, and Eric Johnson. Those last two might win you, win you the, the battle. All right, uh, are we going to put anything on this? Um, how about a six pack of beer? I think we do straight cash. Just like twenty dollars? Ten dollars. Ten dollars. I like it. Alright. Uh that was it for our Memorial Day trading deadline game. And next up we have bottom of the ninth. Alright, we'll cut straight to it, Paul. Say my name. Alright, my name this week. Um I know you haven't been loving the fact that I've been using nicknames instead of the yep. real names, the actual not authentic past few weeks. So this week I went with a real name. Uh, the name is Cletus Poffenberger, and he was a player uh, right before World War II. Uh, pitched for the Tigers in 1937 and 1938. He had a very good rookie season uh, where he went 10 and 5, not a great ERA, 4.65, but did pitch over 130 innings. As a rookie, um, short guy, 5'10", uh, threw right-handed, weighed about 180 pounds. Um, very short career. He was a very colorful figure, alcoholic, who uh, didn't show up for a couple games. Um, so that wasn't good, and that's why he only pitched for two years. Um, the Tigers actually ended up hiring a private detective to follow him hmm. and uh, to see what he was up to, and uh, but uh, reportedly a very honest fellow who didn't hide the fact that he was an alcoholic and slept with a lot of different women. So When did he play? He played 1937-1938. Uh, he went on to be a Marine in World War II. So fitting on Memorial Day weekend that we would talk about Cletus. But Cletus, yes. Cletus Poffenberger is his name, and his nickname was Boots. Um, so he did have a funny nickname. But I, I ran Cletus by Kate for our next challenge. <laughs> she did not approve, so... All right, thank you to Cletus and all the military folk that serve our country. Uh, we will be thinking about you on Memorial Day. All right, my Yahoo answer. I hyped it up earlier. Probably ready for this? I'm ready. This comes from Anonymous. I really wish you hadn't deleted your Yahoo user account person that submitted this question because I want to give you credit. So the question is, is Michael Jordan the Babe Ruth of basketball or is Babe Ruth the Michael Jordan of baseball? Wow. <laughs> Profound. Is Paul's head exploding? Yeah. I mean, it depends on which era you ask the question. Speechless. No, what's your answer? Well, from my perspective, well, I, I think you'd have to say that um, Michael Jordan is the Babe Ruth of basketball. Mm. What, is the ans- what are the answers? Several great answers. Uh 
I got three of them here. First one, Babe Ruth was the Michael Jordan of gambling. <laughs> Another one, the best athlete in all of football was undoubtedly Jerry Rice <laughs> from Agnes. Uh, didn't really stay on topic there. And lastly, from Credo, Michael Jordan is Michael Jordan. Babe Ruth is the babe. Keep it simple. Hmm. I like that. I like that. But I, I think Babe Ruth was a more dynamic uh, athlete and game changer than Jordan. By dynamic, Ruth, you just mean more of an impact? Uh, more of an impact, changed the game. Uh, I think more of a uh, like celebrity at the time. We, uh, Babe Ruth is kind of like a joke now, like this fat, pudgy guy that hit all the homers. Back then, he was like, I mean, he's like the most recognizable guy in all of America. And I think Jordan, even, I mean, everyone would know who he is now. But with time, uh, there's just other athletes. And I think people will obviously always remember Jordan. The clothing mm-hmm. brand really helps. Yep. The shoes. Uh, but I think I think Babe Ruth is more of the, um, I don't know. The thing about historically the, great player. The thing about the babe that always gets me is the historical context. Like he was hitting more home runs than entire teams. Like no, no one at the time was hitting more than uh, ten home runs a season. He comes along and, and is hitting fifty. Like there, I don't think there's been any sports figure that has so outperformed his peers uh, like Babe Ruth. So yeah, I, th- I think that's why Michael Jordan is the Babe Ruth of basketball. Mm-hmm. Uh, before we get to pick your team. Who you got in the uh, Game Seven Warriors uh, oh. Thunder game? A lot of people will be listening to this on on uh, Memorial Day, getting ready for the game. Dub Nation for sure. That was the game last night. Was one of my favorite NBA games that I I remember watching. And it's relevant. Uh, Clay Thompson's brother, Trace Thompson, yes, having a pretty good season for the Dodgers. Yeah, the uh, the only position player the White Sox have developed, they trade away to the Dodgers. So. Uh, yeah, I think the Warriors got that for sure. Clay Thompson was unreal. Mm-hmm. All right, pick your team. Update. Uh, last week, Paul picked the Yankees, who went 3-3. Three and three. I had the Brewers, who went 5-1, and one, so I take a few games lead. My record is 32-18. and 18. Paul, you are 30-19, and 19, so just one game back. Um, yeah, so uh, who's your team this week? Going to go with the Giants. I think they're going to stay hot, and uh, their uh, their pitching has been pretty phenomenal lately. Playing, playing pretty good baseball, playing hard out there. Yep, doing the small things well. Yep. Uh, my team is the Cardinals. They've been playing a little bit better recently. Uh, played well in the nation's capital this weekend, and uh, they got the Brewers to start the week, um, who are not very good. All right, well, that does it. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Make sure to leave us a rating and review there. It really does help the word get out to more uh, people. Uh, we're also on Stitcher now. So if you use Stitcher. How's that work? Did you search, have to submit us to Stitcher? Uh, I would like to say they came to us, but uh, it's pretty easy. You just give them the, the RSS feed and you're, uh, you're on there. So we should have done it earlier, but now you can listen to us on Stitcher. Uh, you can also listen to us on SoundCloud as well. Uh, you can send us emails at a foot in the box at gmail.com. We got a great one with a trout trade proposal and that we will uh, tackle next week uh, on the podcast. So send us emails. We'd love to um, interact with you over email. Follow us on Twitter at a foot in the box. We have 105 Twitter followers now. 
so growing exponentially. Yeah. There's no end in sight. And you can check out all our content, past episodes, uh, Paul and I's articles that we write at afootinthebox.com. Next couple weeks on the podcast. Next week's normal episode. After that, it's Brothers Road Trip time. Yeah, exciting. We're headed to D.C. as we announced several podcast episodes ago. It was in December if you want to go back and listen to that. Uh, but going to Washington, D.C., uh, in two weeks, you'll hear us talk about that. Not sure what we'll do for the podcast. John and Kevin will both be on it, obviously. Uh, but look forward to that. So uh, prepare I yourselves. I sent out an initial feeler to President Obama, so we'll see if he that gets would, back to us. Man, that would be epic. Uh, would you rather have Obama or Bryce Harper on the podcast? President Obama. Really? Not even close. I feel like if we ask Harper a bunch of really President Obama is the most powerful per- person in the entire world right now. Yeah, but Harper... Uh, Plays baseball. Yeah. It's a better fit. We already had Obama on. He said he couldn't remember any White Sox players. I mean, there's a ch- if we submitted a press pass for the game, there's a chance that we could talk to Bryce Harper. You don't think we could talk to Obama? No. I don't know. One question to Obama on the podcast. What would you ask him? Um, were you born in America? Uh, um... Like a, I can ask him an open-ended question. Just so you get one question to ask him. Um, I would ask like what his genuine feelings are about the state of America right now. Hmm. I guess this isn't assuming that he'd actually answer the question honestly. No. So off the record, for sure, that would be a good question. On the record... And because this is a baseball podcast, I'd ask him what he thought was America's pastime. <laughs> kind of stir the pot a little bit. All right, so two weeks we'll talk to the Prez, Mr. Obama. Look forward to that. Um, our outro today is a tribute to Fernando Valenzuela. The song is called Fernando. It was sung in the 1970s, and they played this uh, at Dodger Stadium when Valenzuela would warm up between innings so enjoy fernando yeah paul you got anything else nope just a reminder to keep a foot in the box we'll talk to you next week So great, Fernando.